This morning we are in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38, Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Genesis chapter 38 and verse 1. It says, It came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Er. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan, and yet again conceived and bare a son, and called his name Shelah, and he was at Kezib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar, and her and Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, but and it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did, And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her, And covered her with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge, till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, and thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it to her, and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she arose, and went away, and laid by her veil from her, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. We'll leave our reading there for the moment. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word. We've mentioned already in this series that the story of Joseph takes up about a quarter of the book of Genesis, and yet hardly have we begun that story. We've only really done one chapter, chapter 37, Then we come across this parenthetical chapter, chapter 38, and we begin reading about this man Judah, Joseph's brother. And uh, you might say, well, what has any of this got to do with Joseph and Joseph's life? 
Well, it really has nothing, it's very much to do uh, with Joseph directly, but it has something to do with the Lord Jesus. You see, whereas Joseph typifies Jesus, and his story explains how the Israelites go on from being a small, a large family to a small nation, we find now the line of Judah beginning, and we see how the Lord Jesus comes through this line. Now, what you have here is Judah finding himself a wife. He goes and he finds this Canaanite woman. And he has three children by this woman, three sons. And uh, his wife uh, passes away. His children uh, pass away. Two of his uh, children pass away. And he winds up sending his daughter-in-law back uh, to the home from which she came. You have to excuse me for a moment. I've got a little bit of a nosebleed. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, so he sends her back to where she came, and, uh, and, and, he, and he says to her that he's going to allow her to marry his third son. The first two sons die, he's going to allow her to marry the third son, and she will have a child by that uh, son. And so he sends her back home to her father, and uh, he basically doesn't bother with her again. And the long and short of it is that she, being disgraced, decides to present herself as a harlot at a feast, And in doing that, she seduces her own father-in-law in in order that he would have a child by her. And so it's a rather sordid affair. And yet it is through this arrangement and through this line that the Lord Jesus comes into the world. If you look in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, where we have the lineage of Christ. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3. And notice what it says in the first part of that verse. And Judas, or Judah, begat Phares and Sarah. And notice, he begat these boys of Tamar. And Tamar is his daughter-in-law. Now, none of this would have happened had not Judah been a worldly man. If he hadn't had worldly values. If he hadn't made worldly friendships. You know, over and over again, the Bible warns us about having too close a relationship with worldly people. Unsaved people many times are an instrument used of the devil to lead many a believer, both young and old, back into the world. You know, how we need to make a a clean cut from the world, friends. We need to burn our bridges and be done with our past if we want to go on with the Lord. Look in Proverbs chapter 13 for a moment. Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. I want to look at the 20th verse of this chapter. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20. Notice what it says. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools. And the Bible, when it uses the word fools, is not speaking of horseplay and silliness and that kind of foolishness. It's talking about sin It says, he that is a companion uh, to fools shall be destroyed. If you look further into the book of Proverbs, chapter 22 and verse 24. uh, Chapter 22 of Proverbs and verse 24. Notice what it says here concerning someone with an angry spirit. It says, make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man thou shalt not go. Why? Lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. So here's the real danger. 
If you connect with someone who is particularly worldly, or you're connecting with someone who's living a particularly sinful lifestyle, the chances are that they're going to corrupt you rather than you correcting them. And that's the danger. You see it in the life of Lot. You know, Lot who called the unsaved of Sodom his brethren, and how that he, in that connection, ended up seeing his his in-laws being lost uh, and the destruction of his own family. We see it in the life of Samson, who joined himself to ungodly women and sought the companionship of the Philistines until at last he was blinded and bound and subject to their mockery. We see it in the life of the prodigal son, who leaves the father's house for the far country and makes friends with the world who waste his substance on riotous living. And so I want to say to you this morning, you have to be careful about the company you keep, for very often the company you keep is the company that keeps you. You might be tempted to say, well, pastor, you don't understand. If I didn't have worldly companions and I didn't have these friends, I wouldn't have any friends at all. Well, let me say to you then, you should determine to make friends of God's people. And let me say again, you know, if a person is going to have friends, they must show themselves friendly. You know, sometimes we sit around waiting for others to befriend us. But friends, it falls upon us to be friendly, to go out of our way, to try and befriend others. And so I want to encourage you this morning to take heed from the word of God. Uh, David says in Psalm 119, I am a companion of them that fear thee. I'm a companion of them that fear thee. Choose your friends and companions and associates wisely. Now this morning I'm going to, in Genesis 38, introduce you to Judah's best friend. He's a Bible character that perhaps you don't speak of too often or read and think about too often. Uh, And I dare say that this is possibly a message that maybe you haven't heard uh, the like of before in this particular passage. But I want you to look at this man. His name is Hira. And uh, he really really sets before us the dangers of evil companionship. Uh, Hira is Judah's best friend in this chapter. And I want you to see, first of all, that Hira introduced Judah to the wrong kind of people. He introduced Judah to the wrong kind of people. Look at verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. Now here's the deal. You can imagine the scene back in Jacob's house. Remember, they just told him that Joseph was dead, that Joseph had been uh, devoured by some wild beast. They had brought back his uh, multicolored coat uh, with blood on it to prove this story, this lie that they had concocted. And uh, Jacob was heartbroken. And so you can imagine the atmosphere in this home. You know, it must have been a terrible home to be in. Jacob had lost his wife, Rachel. He was heartbroken already. And now he hears that his, uh, his favorite son, Joseph, has been killed in what seems to be a terrible accident of some kind. And so the poor man is in the pits of despair. But the brothers know that they have lied to their father, that Joseph is alive, that he's well, that he's in Egypt. And they know the truth, but none dare speak it. 
And so Judah's been living under this cloud and evidently it gets on top of him and he decides to leave home and he, and he begins to uh, move out of the family home and he ends up with this fellow Judah, a certain Adulamite we're told. And I understand that Judah is not a young person at this time. He's not a teenager. You know, he's a, he's a grown man and, and right through life, and this is what I want you to get. You know, we t- sometimes think about friendships, associationships, companionships, being an issue for young people, and it is an issue for young people, but it's not just an issue for young people. It's an issue for all of us. And here's the thing, right through your life, you and I make, con- make contacts, friendships, associationships, ties and bonds that can have a real impact upon your spiritual life for good or for ill. And we've got to be careful about that. You know, the Bible says that iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. In other words, there are some people, and they're good for you, spiritually. There are some people, you hang around with them, you end up talking about the Lord, and the things of the Lord, and biblical matters, and you talk about the Christian life, and they're a real bonus to you, and you love to be around them. But then there are other people that are the exact opposite of that. Proverbs 28, 7 says, He that is a companion of riotous men, shameth his father. There are people who pull you back. There are people who draw you down. And so that's what Hira was to Judah. Now, what was it that Judah saw in Hira? What was it in Hira that drew Judah to him as a friend? Well, the answer lies possibly in the meaning of Hira's name. Hira's name means nobility. Nobility. Judah was you know, probably, uh, probably interested in higher up because he had some high standing in his community. You know, Judah was won over and enticed by this matter of being now moving in an upwardly mobile social circle. You know, he was, he was uh, rubbing shoulders uh, with people who were in high places in society. You know, our son works for a... Uh, national charity. He's a director of a national charity, uh, Winston's Wish. And uh, he gets to rub shoulders with uh, royalty and uh, celebrities, sports stars, movie stars, this kind of thing. Uh, and, he, and every now and then he'll send a photograph you know, of himself at some black tie do and he's standing there beside some famous actress who I won't know. And I'll say to him, who is that? And he'll be annoyed. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's, it evidently is a famous actress. One time, he got, into the, uh, he got into the changing room of the entire Aston Villa football team and had his picture taken with one of my sporting heroes, John Terry. John Terry used to be the captain of Chelsea. And so he had a picture of himself with John Terry. And I was, uh, that one did make me a little bit envious. And, uh, and I said to him, did you get his autograph? He said, no, I forgot. Anyway, nevertheless, you know... He, he likes that. He likes, the, he likes that aspect of the job. That he's rubbing shoulders with uh, people who are, you know, who are considered to be important in our society. And you know, we all like a little bit of that. But this was the thing that was driving Judah. Judah was driven by the fact that he was now moving up in life. That he was, uh, he was going to uh, be rubbing shoulders with the high and the mighty of Canaan. And remember, Judah is a materialistic figure. His interest in the previous chapter was what? Profit. He says, what does it profit us if we slay our brother? 
That's what he's interested in. He's interested in money. He couldn't care less where Joseph went as long as he got a few silver coins in his back pocket. So now he's walking in the company of high society. He's meeting interesting people. He's meeting wealthy people. He's in the company of nobility, no less. And you know, friends, sometimes those who are lost seem to us to be far more interesting and far more engaging and far more fun than those who are saved. Sometimes we think the lost person is having a far better life than the saved person. Sometimes we get the idea that lost people live their lives on the edge. They're experiencing all that the world has to offer, good or bad, whilst the Christian is closeted away in this cloistered world you know, of home and work and church, and that's all he's got. And so the life of the lost man sometimes seems far more exciting, far more exhilarating, far more thrilling, you know, far more uh, sensual for sure than anything that Christian life seems to afford. By the way, if you think the Christian life is boring, I would suggest you're not loving it. The Christian life's anything but boring. It's an absolutely joy to live for the Lord Jesus. I wouldn't go back to my old sinful life. But coming back to Judah... This is how he saw Hira. He saw him as an important figure, as a man of nobility. And it seems that Hira introduced him to other people in that circle. For as well as he was in this company, that Judah found a wife, the daughter of Shua, a Canaanite man. And Shua means wealthy. So we would say of Judah at this point that he married into money. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. Hayes and I had a friend when we were teenagers and uh, he had a girlfriend, and the, and the girlfriend was bleeding him dry. Absolutely bleeding him dry. Honestly, he was a teenager. Where he got the money from, I don't know. But every time we looked at him, he was given this woman, this young lady, you know, jewelry and, and clothes. And, and I, I don't even remember he even had a job. I don't know what he was doing. He must have been robbing banks or something. But anyway, he had this girlfriend, and she was bleeding him dry. And we were driving around the other day, and we were up in Hillsborough, and we saw, we saw a, a house, or, you know, a nice house in Hillsborough. You know what houses are like in Hillsborough? You, they're out of your price range. And so I saw a nice house in Hillsborough, and there was a, an estate agent sign outside it. And, and I said, you know, that's who so-and-so married. And I said, you know, you learned for the first time, you know, that uh, there was no point in marrying a woman who's going to bleed you dry. So he married somebody with lots of money. <laughs> and that's what Judah did. He married somebody with lots of money. Now, if I could bring this into a sort of modern kind of parlance, a modern kind of context, this is how I see this playing out today. Here's Judah, the country boy. Here's Judah, the boy from Acton. Here's Judah, the boy from Scarva, or some village around this neighborhood. And uh, somehow or other, you know, he thinks life is pretty dull out in the country. It's just cows and sheep and pigs and, and all those good things. And, he, and he's looking at the city life, and he's thinking the city life is looking exciting. It's bright. There's bright lights. There's lots of activity going on. All the big concerts are in the city. All the important people come to the city. And, you know, he meets this set of friends, and they seem to him to be more exciting. You know, the, these friends that he's met perhaps in school or university, he meets these friends, he's enjoying their company, they're far more interesting, they're far more edgy at times, even a little bit scary, uh, and certainly a, a, a lot more fun than the crew he grew up with back in that church down the country. And so in time he meets a girl, and she's a looker, she's a woman of the world, and her daddy is rich, and they marry, and they build a really nice upmarket home, 
and they drive a really nice car and they hold the most marvelous dinner parties with the finest of friends in their luxury apartment and they show off the latest of gear. You know, all the, all the money, all that money could buy was on display in their home. And in the early days of their marriage, these two have the world by the tail and they don't mind flaunting it. No doubt some of Joseph's brothers came in off the farm and visited with, not Joseph, sorry, Judah's brothers came in off the farm and visited with Judah and looked at where he had gotten to in life and envied him, coveted the things that he had. You know, probably they envied his possessions, his fine clothes, his lovely home, his beautiful, well-educated, well-spoken, well-heeled wife. But the fact of the matter is, friends, the things that impress us in life very rarely impress God. So Judah's worldly friendship with Hira led him into an unequal yoke in marriage. He marries this Canaanite, a woman who is part of a cursed race, who practiced the most depraved form of religion imaginable. And where did this all begin? I'll tell you where it began. It began with a worldly friendship. It began when Judah made the acquaintance of Hira the Adulamite. And they connected. And one thing led to another. Now in Canaanite culture, the women were held in fairly powerful positions. And uh, they had very important governmental and religious roles. And uh, and they enjoyed certainly extensive economic, legal, and uh, matrimonial rights. And uh, in fact, inheritance rights in that culture, were denied to their sons if they in some way showed disrespect to their mother. So if you disrespected your mother in Canaan, you were cut out of your inheritance as a son. So the women of the home often held the dominant position. It was a matriarchal society. And that's how it was evidently in Judah's home because in time he and his wife have these three sons. And the first son, he calls him Aaron. Now, that's entirely in keeping with Hebrew custom. That's entirely keeping with the way Jews operate. But the second two sons, notice, she names them. Verse 4, she conceived a son, uh, she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again and bare a son and called his name Shelah. So notice that it seems to be her that's wearing the trousers in the house. And in keeping with the custom of the day, then Judah makes it his business to choose a wife for his firstborn son, Er. And he chooses this rather attractive young woman by the name of Tamar. But before Tamar can conceive, notice what happens. We read in verse 7 that Er was a wicked son and that the Lord slew him before the couple could have any children. Now, in that culture, and this is not something that we would identify with at all, but in that time, in that culture, there was a custom known as the Leverite Law. And the Leverite Law said this, that if a man died without having children, that his brother was obligated then to marry his wife, to marry his widow, and to have children by her on behalf of his brother. And that's how things operated. And so the second brother comes along, uh, and uh, he, uh, he, he is uh, obligated now to uh, marry this woman, Tamar. And uh, his name is Onan. And so he refuses to have children by her. And he deliberately prevents that from happening. 
And the consequence of that is that he also ends up being killed by the Lord, slayed by the Lord, because he displeases uh, the Lord. Which leaves Tamar, now a widow, for the second time. And there's a third son now that is supposed to step up to the plate, and he's supposed to take the place of Onan and Er and have children by Tamar in order to satisfy this Leverite law. But what happens? Well, Judah, instead of marrying Tamar to Selah, instructs Tamar to go back to her father's home and wait until the youngest son had matured somewhat, until he'd grown up a little bit. Now, we don't have enough time to explain all of this this morning, but understand that what Judah did in returning Tamar to her father's home was a matter of disgrace. It was a humiliating act. It was rather like treating her like like uh, faulty goods. You know, if you've got something, you buy something in a shop and it doesn't work for you, you take it back to the shop and you complain and you leave it with the shopkeeper and look for a refund. Well, it's the same idea. She, you know, here's this woman and, uh, you know, she's had two sons. They've both died. She's supposed to marry the third son. And what is he thinking? He's thinking to himself, she's like a black widow. He says, every time I marry her to one of my sons, He dies. I've got one son left. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to marry her to him. And so he he deceives her. And he tells her, look, you know, I know this is a little embarrassing, but I'm going to send you back to your father if you would just stay there for a while. When Selah has matured a little bit, I'll come back and get you, and you can marry Selah and have children uh, by him. He's completely dishonest and insincere in his dealings with her. Now remember, we've talked already in this book about generational sin. How that our children pick up things that are caught, not things that are necessarily taught. We don't teach our children to behave badly, but very often when they do behave badly, they're behaving like us because they've seen things in us. They've seen our flaws, our faults, our feelings, and they have absorbed those things and they practice those things. So here's one of the things you'll find. Very often if you find mom and dad have an issue with somebody, and they're gossiping about that person, or they're backbiting that person, or they're criticizing that person. If you hang around long enough, you'll find that children also have an issue with this person, and they will say things about that person, backbite that person, gossip about that person, and so on. It's a generational thing. And so there's generational sin in going all the way back to Abraham. Remember what Abraham did? Abraham lied about the identity of Sarah. What happens next? Isaac comes along. Isaac lies about the identity of Rebekah. Jacob lied to secure his father's blessing. Uh, His sons lied to cover up their tracks in selling Joseph into Egypt. And now Judah lies to protect his son, Shelah. It was a learned behavior passed down from generation to generation to generation. You say, but wait a minute, pastor. You've just told us this is the man through whom the Lord Jesus comes. This is the man who's in the messianic line. This is the man you know, who really should know better and, and just look at his, at his conduct. Well, here's the deal, friends. Have you never heard this? Evil communications corrupts good manners. Or we might put it this way, bad company corrupts good habits. Bad apple always, always rots the good. The good never improves the bad. So Hira introduced Judah to the wrong kind of people. Then Hira took Judah along to the wrong kind of parties. Look in verse 12. 
And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. He's widowed. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Now, here's the amazing thing, and I'm going to say something that might sound shocking to you, but are you ready for this? Here it comes. Worldly people go to worldly places. Isn't that shocking? Worldly people go to worldly people places. Now, if that, if that has shocked you, really it ought not to have done. But what is shocking is that sometimes Christian people go with them to worldly places. You see, I absolutely you know, accept the fact that worldly people will go to worldly places. That's what worldly people do. That's what you would expect of somebody who's in the world. But sometimes Christians who ought to know better go with their unsafe friends to worldly places. Let me tell you, up and down conservative Northern Ireland today, in churches just like this one, there are young men and young women sitting in the services with their Bibles in the lap, just having sung the hymns that we've sung, were similar, who last night were in a nightclub somewhere, hanging around with the worldly club, mixing cocktails with the best of them, joining in with the songs of the world and the music of the world and behaving like the world and dressing like the world and talking like the world and sounding like the world. But they're in church today. Worldly people do worldly things. But sometimes Christians who know better also do worldly things. And why do they do this? Because of worldly friendships. Because they're of worldly friendships. You see, if you make friends with the world, the world's going to drag you to where the world goes. So here Judah has lost, you know, he's lost these two sons. Now he's lost his wife. And maybe he's beginning to understand how Jacob feels. Remember, he's been a, little, a bit indifferent about Jacob to this point because after all, Jacob has lost a wife. He's lost two sons. He's lost Joseph, but now he's also lost Judah because Judah's left home. So in the middle of his mourning, this son leaves. And so Judah's like the prodigal who's left the father's house. Uh, but Judah doesn't seem to care too much for any of that. For Judah was out for Judah. And God is going to have to make a change in Judah's life. And by the time we get to this end of this story, in Genesis as a book, you'll see that he does. So no doubt after losing his wife, having, losing, having lost his two sons, Judah's feeling pretty low. He has the weight of the world upon his shoulders. And who shows up but, notice verse 12, his friend, Hira the Adulamite. Hira shows up. And what's a good friend going to do when you're down? He's going to cheer you up. And how's he going to cheer you up? Well, that depends on whether he's a godly friend or a worldly friend. If he's a godly friend, he might spend time with you in prayer. He might give you an encouraging word. He might read a, an encouraging scripture. He might you know, go somewhere and, and enjoy a pleasant day together. But if he's a worldly friend, he'll have a worldly, a worldly response to your need. And that's what we see here. Hira comes along, and effectively, I'm going to paraphrase here. He says, hey, it's sheep shearing time in Timnath. He says, let's, let's go. You know, you're a shepherd. You know all about shepherds and sheep and that kind of thing. He says, why don't we go to the sheep, sheep, uh, sheep shearing festival in Timnath? You know, there'll be plenty of booze, and there'll be lots of women, and there'll be song, and there'll be dance, and we'll go down there, and we'll have a good time. It'll take your mind off things. You can hear that conversation, can't you? Now, I have to tell you, I'm a, you know I'm a city boy. And a sheep-shearing festival sounds to me to be possibly the worst thing that you could possibly attend. Okay? 
Uh, you know, I know it made me smile last year when people were going to the Balmoral show. You know, when I, when I grew up in Belfast and they had the Balmoral show at Balmoral, and they used to do a little bit about it in the news each night, I used to look at it and think, why do people go to that? It's just cows and sheep. That's how it looked to me, to be honest with you. Now, don't get offended, okay? Don't be offended if you like cows and sheep. That's fine. I've nothing against cows or sheep. I like eating them both. But, you know, people go to Balmoral and they show you the pictures. Here would be somebody walking a cow around a ring. And I'd be like, what is that about? Here would be somebody out with a sheep, combing the sheep, putting a ribbon on the sheep. And I'd be thinking, what in the world? What kind of show is this? This is not the kind of show that I would like to go to. Now, just to balance this out, I think this year I'm going to go to see what the attraction is, okay? I didn't go last year. Time didn't allow me last year. But Lord willing, this year, one day, I'm going to go to the Balmoral show and see if I enjoy it. (laughs) So to me as a city boy, that seems like the worst thing to go to, a sheep-shearing festival. But this wasn't just sheep-shearing. This was a carnival. What they were going to here was like Mardi Gras. It was like Rio. It was like Notting Hill in London. There was every kind of sin and vice and wickedness to be enjoyed. And so Judah decided to go. And all the while, Shelah, his son, has matured. And there's no sign of him giving him to Tamar as a, hus- as a husband. Then so that she might be saved from embarrassment and disgrace. And hearing that Judah is going to this festival, uh, she decides to... Uh, to dress as a harlot. She contrives to seduce her father-in-law. She dresses as a prostitute and she waits for him. You see, she knew the kind of worldly character he was. He didn't have a good testimony with her. You know, if he had been walking with the Lord, she would have said, look, he'll not be interested in any prostitutes. But she knew the kind of fleshly character that he was and the way that he was living, that if she dressed this way, he would get her attention and he would come her direction. And that's exactly what happened. Judah passes by his daughter-in-law. He sees her dressed as a prostitute. He propositions her. And uh, you know how well she knew him. And the price of her service, well, it's a kid from his flock. That's the payment you know, that he doesn't have with him. He doesn't have that kid with him. By the way, who goes to a sheep shearing festival and doesn't bring a sheep? Only somebody who's interested in the sideshows. He wasn't there for the sheep. So as a mark of his willingness to pay her, he gives her his signet ring, his bracelets, and his staff in verse 18. So verse 17, he says, I'll send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, give me your pledge. And that's what he does. He gives her his signet and his bracelets and his staff. And I love what the commentator John Phillips says of this transaction. He says, the signet was his ring used for impressing his signature into clay tablets of the time. It represented his person. His bracelets were probably a valued chain of gold. They represented his possessions. His staff marked him out as a shepherd. In ancient times, many people carried a staff, often carved with some identifying symbol, such as an animal, a flower, or a bird. The staff represented his position. Judah could could thus lightly forfeit his person, 
his position, his possessions for the sake of a moment of lust. The book of Proverbs says that. Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 6 talks about lust and the strange woman and it says how that a, a, a strange woman reduces a man uh, to a piece of bread. It can bring him down to where he has literally nothing but a piece of bread. So Judah was willing to give everything he had just to have one afternoon of pleasure with this woman. And that's where worldly friendship had brought him. You see, Hera introduced Judah to the wrong kind of people. He took Judah to the wrong kind of parties. And notice, he encouraged Judah down the wrong kind of path. Look at verse 20. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Julemite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot and what was that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest, she, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent her this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And look at his hypocritical response. And Judah said, Bring her forth and let her be burnt. And when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are am I with child. And she said, The servant, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son, and he knew her again no more. You see where Hira now stands in Judah's life. In verse 1, he was a mere acquaintance. Judah went down to, from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. By verse 12, he's an associate. Notice he says to him in verse 12 to come along. In the process of time, his wife died. Judah was comforted, went up into his sheep shearer to Timnath. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. He's an associate. But by verse 20, he's an accomplice. He's an accomplice. When Judah is going to send the kid back to pay this harlot off, he sends the kid by the hand of Hara, his friend. You see, the nature of worldly friendships, friends, you know, the nature of worldly behavior. The Bible says a, a friend rubs off you. You know, he either encourages you to do what's right, or he uh, it discourages you from doing what's right and encourages you to do the wrong thing. Here's what Proverbs says in chapter 4. Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it and pass away. For they sleep not except they have done mischief and their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. And that's the truth. You know, I've, I've been in worldly situations in my past life and I've seen guys come into a club or into a pub and they don't drink alcohol. They've never drank alcohol. They have no desire to drink alcohol. And somebody will stand there and say to them, sure, just have one little drink. Sure, one drink will do you no harm. Oh, but I'm a Christian. I know, but you don't have to get drunk. Just have a drink. Sure, you'll be all right. You know where that goes. One drink leads to two, two drinks lead to three. And before you know it, the fellow's out there in the world drinking with the rest of them. In other words, they're not happy unless they cause someone to fall. They're not happy unless they drag somebody with them. They're not happy unless they ruin your life as their lives is being ruined. 
And Hera was that kind of friend. And clearly Judah was tied into this unequal yoke and companionship. He teamed up with this worldly associate. Someone put it this way. A friend indeed is one who says quietly but firmly, what you're doing, friend, is sin. It's harmful to you and to others. It's destructive to God's will for you. But that was never, there was never the slightest chance of Hira ever saying anything remotely like that to Judah. He was never going to say to him, listen, don't go with that harlot. You're making a mistake here. No, no, he's going to egg him on. Go on. Have a good time. He was never going to say to him, don't go to the sheep shearing festival. He's going to say, come on, we'll go. It's going to be great. It'll be a laugh. Sure, you know, there'll be lots, lots to, to entertain us. There'll be lots to keep us, uh, keep us occupied. Never the slightest chance of Hira saying to him, what you're doing is sin. Because Hira was an evil companion. And their friendship was an unequal yoke. Well, in the course of time, we just read Judah's sin was exposed, and he had, thankfully, the sense to acknowledge his wrong, to acknowledge that he had been unrighteous, and Tamar had just cause for the things he did, although that doesn't excuse her. And he returns back to his father's home. But how this whole episode reminds us of the importance of being careful with our connections, of being careful with whom we're linked up to, of being careful who we go arm in arm with, of being wise about our associates, wise about our companions, whether it's in friendships or marriage or business or other arrangements. And it's, good, it's for good reason that the Scripture says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Look at the progress there. It says, Blessed is the man who standeth. He's standing to begin with. or Sorry, he's, he walketh. He's walking to begin with. He walks not on the counsel of the ungodly. Then he's standing. Before he's, uh, early in that verse, he's moving along. Then he's standing. He's stationary. And then he's seated. He's actually planting himself down among the ungodly. You know, I shared with you a week or two ago, how that when I came out of my punk rock background, and I played drums and I was invited to play drums in a church and I said I wouldn't because somebody advised me the Lord doesn't save you out of something to put you back into something. And again, another around the same time, very, in fact, very early after I was saved, this is this one of these unusual Christian experiences that you get perhaps in the early days of your conversion. But right after I got saved, very, within a matter of a few weeks or maybe a month or so, I was invited by my friend to go to a, a concert by Stiff Little Fingers. And I used to love going to see Stiff Little Fingers when I was in the punk scene. That was one of my favorite bands. And he says, you know, there's a Stiff Little Fingers concert on. Do you want to come? And I gave it a moment's thought. And then this thought crossed my mind. And and don't ask me where this thought came from, other than the Lord. But I just had this thought that said, read Psalm 1-1. That was the thought that crossed my mind. Now, I didn't even really know the Bible. But I just had this thought, read Psalm 1-1. And when I got home, I read Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the, uh, of the uh, scornful. And I knew that was not the place I ought to be. And that was not the friend I ought to go with. Hey, what, what kind of company are you keeping? What kind of company are you keeping outside of this building? 
What kind of company are you keeping during the week? Who are your associates and companions at work? Who are you closest with? Who are your friends at school? Who are you hanging out with in the corridors? How are they helping you in your walk with the Lord? Or are they somehow stumbling you in your walk with the Lord? Do you find they're introducing you to the wrong kind of people? Bringing you to the wrong kind of parties? Taking you down the wrong kind of paths? Well, friends, there's time to sever that tie. Dear brother, dear sister, you ought to know that worldly companionships are destructive to the soul. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Come out from among them, saith the Bible, and be ye separate and have no fellowship, the Scripture says, with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.